If we are living in the dispensation of the grace of God and uh, under the administration of the mystery, then as members of the body of Christ, we should know everything there is to know about this program. We, of course, won't be able to cover it all in this one session, but we want to touch on some of the highlights. Here in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, the apostle writes these words, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Uh, as you study the word of God rightly divided, this is a wonderful portion of scripture insofar as Paul says that he's the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. That was unheard of in prophecy. No one was sent to the Gentiles as an apostle to bring forth the good news to them. As we have seen, they had to be saved through God's chosen nation. But here, God has began, has begun, I should say, a new program, the mystery. And notice, Paul goes on to say in verse 2, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you words. Notice that Paul is the one who has received the dispensation of the grace of God. So God has changed his dealings with mankind. We have passed from the law to grace. We are no longer under the law. We are living under God's administration of grace today. And in verse 3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Now, notice how Paul points out here the term mystery. And he's going to throughout this context. To him was committed the revelation of the mystery. And as we have been seeing, that's a program, a new program that Paul was raised up to usher in. But notice what he says here in verse 3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. The apostle received this program by direct revelation. The Lord appeared to him in the Arabian desert and began to dispense all the doctrines of grace. Paul did not have all great truth at one sitting. Rather, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, I will come to visions and revelations in the Lord. And so Paul's epistles are a progressive revelation. They are developing this program and dispensation. 
And so sometimes we must distinguish between his early ministry and his latter ministry. Because as he came to these new truths, many of the old ways were passing from the scene. So the apostle received this message by direct revelation. He met face to face with the Lord. Just as God met face to face with Moses to dispense the law, the Lord Jesus Christ met face to face with Paul to dispense this dispensation to him. Now as you go on in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So here we learn how we come to a knowledge of the mystery. It's through illumination. Not one in this room received the knowledge of the mystery by direct revelation. Only Paul could say that. We came to see it through illumination. We were illuminated when someone opened the scriptures to us. And they showed us the distinctive apostleship and message of Paul. And as we became Bereans, and as we compared spiritual things with spiritual things, as we desired to be in the center of God's will, we have come to an understanding of this blessed message of grace. And we're still growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be it known unto you, we do not have all truth yet. I don't believe we will ever have all truth on this side of glory. Not until we step into the presence of our Lord will we have all truth. But I will say this, if you rightly divide the word, you have more truth than most. Now having said that, Paul's message is a part of the overall kingdom of God. And this is a very common question that Tim asked earlier. Well, what's the kingdom of heaven? And then you have the phrase kingdom of God. And this becomes terribly confusing to the saints. First of all, let's look at Acts chapter 20 a moment. Paul makes a very startling statement here that has really set many believers back on their heels. Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. Here as Paul had been ministering to the saints at Ephesus before his departure, he states these words, But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. Now notice, he had received this ministry from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. When you go back to the four gospels, it was the good news of the kingdom. When you come to Paul's apostleship, it's the good news of the grace of God. That's Acts 20, 24. But verse 25 has become the problem area for many. And now behold, 
I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, shall see my face no more. And we say, Paul, what are you saying? Here we are making this case that the kingdom belongs to Israel and Christ will reign upon the earth, and that's found in prophecy. And Paul makes a statement like that. He went preaching the kingdom of God. And many things say, I'm confused. But it shows you the importance of teaching the word, of studying it, rightly divided. And when you have a problem with the word of God, the problem is not with the scriptures. As I pointed out before, it's with our understanding of them. Sometimes we need to be patient and simply wait on a little further light. Don't be impetuous with the word of God. We're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a process. It's a lifetime achievement. As we see this phrase, kingdom of God, you need to understand that it is a very general designation. The kingdom of God is over all. It's spiritual in scope. And so there is righteousness and joy and peace, the apostle says. So as we look at this general designation of the kingdom of God, when you see that phrase in the scriptures, you must always ask yourself this question. Which aspect of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed? The kingdom of heaven or the heavenly kingdom proclaimed by Paul? You say, well, it sounds like the same terminology to me. Oh, but there is a marvelous truth here. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 3 a moment. Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 6. Let's also get that as well. We'll look at a couple of scriptures here. Perhaps we could begin at Matthew 6 and verse 33. Here Matthew writes and records the words of our Lord to his disciples. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So here our Lord in his earthly ministry makes reference to the phrase kingdom of God. Again, that very general designation. This is Matthew 6, 33. But seek thee first the kingdom of God. Now let's go back to Matthew 3 and verse 2. And saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here, as John the Baptist was proclaiming the gospel, 
he proclaims the kingdom of heaven. And he's specifically referring to the thousand-year reign of Christ. Well, why in the world, then, does he call it the kingdom of heaven? Oh, that's very simple. Because the parable says the nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and to return. And so it will be of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to return to heaven according to prophecy until all his enemies were made his footstools. And while he was in heaven, he was to receive the kingdom unto himself and return to the earth. Where I am, there ye shall be also. And so it will be like heaven upon the earth when Christ comes back to rule and reign in righteousness. Will he not lift the curse partially from the earth? Will not he rule in righteousness and with a rod of iron? Will not he put down sin and rebellion in that day? It's going to be a reign of peace and glory and power. It's going to be like heaven on earth. That's why I, when the nations speak about peace and bringing in peace, it'll never happen in your lifetime or mine or anyone else's in this dispensation. But once we're taken to glory, and prophecy runs its course, there is coming a literal 1,000-year kingdom. And it's called the kingdom of heaven because it's going to be like heaven on earth. Now, it's interesting, if my memory serves me correctly, that phrase, kingdom of heaven, is only found in the gospel according to Matthew. And the reason for that is because Matthew proclaims the kingship of Christ. You see, he's going to be the king in the kingdom. Christ is not the king of the body of Christ. He's the head of the body of Christ in this program. So whenever you study the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see the phrase kingdom of God used, or kingdom of heaven, it's referring to the earthly aspect of this overall kingdom. Also, you will note that I keep saying the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because there are not four different gospels. There's only one, and that's the gospel of the kingdom. Well, that brings us to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 18. When you come to Paul's gospel and his proclamation of the mystery, there's a change that has taken place. Paul does not proclaim, nor did he ever proclaim, the earthly ministry of Christ. God had 12 apostles to proclaim the earthly ministry of Christ. The reason he was raising up Paul was to introduce this new program was to introduce the heavenly ministry of Christ, that we as members of his body would be seated with him there in glory. And so Paul refers to the heavenly kingdom. So when he uses the phrase, I went forth preaching the kingdom of God, he's talking about the heavenly aspect of it, you see. And that's why he says to Timothy here, 
in verse 18, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me, now notice, unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's the program we proclaim to you to this day. The heavenly kingdom of Christ. The heavenly ministry of Christ. Because you see, he's seated at the right hand of the Father today, lavishing the world with the riches of his kingdom. He's seated in the heavenly. We're to be seated with him there. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of darkness in heavenly places. We have the heavenly hope and calling, and that is what we proclaim to this day. So when you see the phrase, kingdom of God, whether it be in the four gospels or Paul proclaiming it, again, you must always ask yourself the question, which aspect of that kingdom of God is being proclaimed, the earthly or the heavenly? That brings us back to Ephesians chapter 3. And as we go on here in our context, there's something else we need to note here. Notice how in verse 5 Paul says, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Notice the order there. Notice that the order is apostles first and prophets. Now, some have said, well, according to Ephesians chapter 2, then, our message is built on the message of the twelve apostles and the prophets of old. Oh, not in any sense of the word. I think here Paul's referring to the apostles of grace and the prophets of grace. Now, you say, well, wait a minute now. In the last section, you said there's only one apostle. That's true. There is only one primary apostle of grace, that's Paul. But there were secondary apostles in this administration of grace as well, such as Titus, such as Timothy. That was also true under the kingdom gospel. There were the twelve primary apostles, but there also were secondary apostles who were sent forth with revelations as well, and to confirm the revelation. James, the half-brother of our Lord, is a good example. He's a secondary apostle of the kingdom. As we come to the mystery program, Paul the primary, we see that Timothy and Titus would be in a secondary sense. So here, then, in this dispensation, he's referring to the apostles of grace and prophets of grace. And the order is always the same. Let's establish, though, that this is the case. Let's turn to... 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul and Silas and Timothy unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here... Paul and Silas and Timothy were ministering to the saints at Thessalonica. Then in chapter 2, 
and verse 6. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the, notice the plural, the apostles of Christ. You see, that's Paul and Silas and Timothy. The plural is used. First Thessalonians 2, 6. So, whenever we look at Paul's epistles, then, the order is always the same. Apostles first, followed by the prophets, because that's how they came on the scene. Paul first, then followed by Timothy and Titus, then we see the emergence of the prophets of grace. The prophets, like Agabus and so forth, and right, uh, in the book of Acts. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 a moment. And let's just take a little tour here to show you that this is the case. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20 and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then, of course, we have the reference in Ephesians 3, 5. Let's look at Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets. Notice the order again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we won't turn there. You can turn there later. Again, it's the apostles of grace first, followed by the prophets. So, here in the mystery program, Paul's always consistent with that. Apostles and prophets. Now, when we go back to this program, how's it going to read? It's going to read prophets and apostles, right? Why? Because the prophet came first, followed by the apostles, correct? Well, let's just see if that's true from the scriptures. Luke chapter 11. And verse 49, again, we're coming back to the earthly ministry of Christ, to prophecy. And in Luke 11:49, our Lord says to his apostles, 12, Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute. So we should expect to find the order that way, shouldn't we? Because in this program, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel came first, followed by the twelve apostles of the kingdom confirming their prophecies of old and proclaiming the Messiah. When we switch programs here now to the heavenly ministry of Christ, it's turned around just opposite, as we should expect it to be so. That brings us back to Ephesians chapter 3. On to verse 6. Paul says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, 
who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Notice in verse 5 and 6 in particular, Paul proclaims a joint body. Notice in verse 6 that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. That's joint heirs. And of the same body, that's a joint body. And joint partakers of his promise is the sense. You see, in the English translation, the sense is somewhat veiled here. If you go back to the original language, the same Greek word that is used, if my memory serves me correctly. It's joint heirs, joint body, joint partakers is the idea. Well, that was unheard of in prophecy. Today, what you have in Christ is a new creation. Jews and Gentiles baptized spiritually into the body of Christ without distinction. We're a new creation in Christ, and Christ is the head of this body. So it's a joint body, but we're also joint heirs. Just as Israel will reign with Christ on the earth, the body of Christ is going to reign with Christ in the heavenlies. And we're joint partakers of his promise, and I think that's the promise of eternal life that was to be manifested in due time through Paul's gospel to the Gentiles. Titus 1 2. And Paul says unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. We won't turn to Titus 1 2. I was just giving you the reference. Ephesians 3 8. Unto me, unto uh, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now you see where I got the title for my book. Exploring the unsearchable riches of Christ. And that term here in Ephesians 3.8 has the idea of untraceable, untrackable. You cannot track these doctrines of grace back into the prophetic scriptures. We challenge you. I have a challenge before God for you to find the church, the body of Christ, that joint body, Jew and Gentile without distinction in those prophetic scriptures. You'll search for a long, long time. I challenge you to find a heavenly hope back there in those prophetic scriptures. Oh, I know we're told all about it, that they look forward to going to heaven. But every reference we saw last night, they look forward to reigning with Christ on earth. I challenge you to find the rapture of the church anywhere outside of Paul's epistle. Where believers in Christ, who are members of his body, will be caught off of the earth at the rapture. And then the unsaved left behind to go through that dreaded day of the Lord. We call it his secret coming for the church. It's simply not found in the prophetic scriptures. 
but we challenge you to search it. Don't take my word for it. You know, brethren, the reason we're in the predicament we're in in the body of Christ today and why there, why there are so many cults and religion and confusion is because for too long we've taken the pastor's quote-unquote word for it. He's trained. He went to seminary. Cemeteries, as they call them. He said it, not me. <laughs> you know what God wants for you? He wants you to take these things we're proclaiming and open these scriptures and read them for yourself. You need to be convinced. Let the Holy Spirit minister to you. And if you come to the same conclusion I have, then thanks be unto God. And may God receive all the honor and the glory. It's his word. We're merely instruments in his hands to proclaim it. But be careful with taking the pastor's word for it or the theologian's word. You need to check it out for yourself and compare scripture with scripture to see if these things are so. The untraceable riches of Christ. But now of those untraceable riches of Christ, I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, that we're blessed with all spiritual blessings. Notice the Apostle says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us, that's you and me, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. So our primary blessings are spiritual. So in this program here, we proclaim all of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. Now, what do you suppose the primary blessings are going to be here under this program of old? Right, physical, material blessings. Let's look at that. It's another distinction that has to be made with the mystery. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I know, I know, everybody says the Old Testament is like watching paint dry. No, I kind of like watching paint dry. It means I'm taking a break. <laughs> Deuteronomy 28, in verse 1. Still here are some pages turning. We'll give you a moment. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. And it shall come to pass if, and you need to circle that if, because when I see a word if, that supposition means conditional. Something has to be met in order for them to enjoy what's going to be said here. That thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments, which I commanded thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth, See the supremacy of Israel there? Verse 2, And all these blessings shall come on thee, 
and overtake thee, if, again, notice, thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. And now Moses goes forth, and he's going to lift seven of Israel's physical and material blessings. They were primary to her. Number one, verse three, blessed shalt thou be in the city. Now, what do we do when we go to the city? We buy. We sell. So the Lord is saying, I'll prosper you in all your business dealings. I need not say any more. Jewish people are very shrewd, shrewd business people. How much more so when God's blessing was upon them. Blessed shalt thou be in the field. When they would put their hand to that plow, the earth would yield its fullness. Seed time and harvest would be a blessing. Blessing number three in verse four. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body and the fruit of thy ground and the fruit of thy cattle. God said, I'll open the womb. You know, back at this time, life was celebrated. In our day, it's a curse. Sad to say where the unborn is murdered. Call abortion what you will, but it's out and out murder. Bottom line. Bottom line. I don't care what term. Back here, when Sarah was barren and Elizabeth was barren, they counted that a curse upon them. They felt God was far from them. It was a blessing to bear children. Children are the heritage of the Lord. And let thy quiver be full, the psalmist says in Psalm 127. Anybody know how many arrows were in their quiver? Twelve. Blessed be if you have twelve children. You ever notice it says, blessed be the man and not blessed be the woman? She's too busy taking care of them all. <laughs> verse, verse 5 number 4 blessed shall be thy bread basket and thy store and the term store there in the Hebrew is the meeting trough where they needed the bread the Lord is saying there will always be bread on the Hebrew table verse 6 blessing 5 shall be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. What do we do when we come in? Well, we rest. We commune with our families. We teach our little ones the things of the Lord. The Lord says, I'll bless that too. And when you go out, what do we do when we go out? Well, we testify of all God is doing. Because my hand of blessing will be on you as you witness to the nations. And in verse 7, we have number 6. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. Again and again in prophecy, whenever the enemy stood in the way of the chosen people of God, they were annihilated. 
they fell at the edge of the sword as God was bringing his people out of the wilderness into the promised land. And verse 8, blessing 7, And the Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses, and in all that thou settest thy hand unto, and he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And you need to circle land there. That's the promised land. That's the hope of Israel, to one day inherit that land on the earth and all of these blessings that go with them. So in prophecy, the primary blessings were physical and material in nature. They had spiritual blessings too, but they were secondary to them. They looked forward to entering that land and possessing that which was promised to Abraham, their father, in the beginning. Let's turn back to Ephesians. Remember what Moses said? Repeating the words of our Lord, If ye obey my voice, indeed. When Israel obeyed, she was blessed. When she disobeyed, the curses of God fell upon her. But now when we come to Ephesians and to the mystery program, how different Something catches my attention right off in verse 3. Ephesians 1, verse 3. We'll go back to Ephesians 3 in a minute. Ephesians 1, verse 3, we want to begin. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. What's missing there? What word? If. That's right. No if with us. Our blessings are unconditional. You have them in Christ. They belong to you right now. You have them all. But do you know what they are? You ask the average Christian today what they're blessed with in Christ, and they probably couldn't name more than four or five. Shame on us. This is given to us as a gift from God, the grace of God. We should know what they all are, or at least most of them. Paul gives us seven right here. Verse 4, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We were chosen in Christ as members of the body of Christ before the world began. Do you realize that God had the body in mind all along? You're a part of the eternal counsel of God. In eternity past, he had predetermined that there would be the church, the body of Christ. You see, nothing takes God by surprise. He is infinite in knowledge and wisdom. And he had planned and purposed us all. And whenever Israel rebelled and rejected her Messiah, God did not sit in the heavens wringing his hands, Oh my, what shall we do now? 
Oh no. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to set her aside in unbelief. And when he set her aside in unbelief, he raised up Paul to give him the mystery. And now, we're blessed with all spiritual blessings. God knew about it all along. Then in verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. God predetermined that we would receive the adoption as sons. The term children there in the Greek is sons. There's a difference between a child and a son. The child shows relationship. That's not the term Paul uses here. Paul uses the term son here, the adoption of sons, as the idea of privilege and responsibility. Blessing. We've received the inheritance of God as full-grown sons. It's rightfully ours. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Spiritual blessing number three. You know, we hear people all the time saying, I accepted the finished work of Christ on my behalf, and I'm saved. But you know, sometimes I think we need to be careful with our terminology. It's not given to us to accept the ones for all sacrifice. We're to believe it. It was God who had to accept it. You see a picture of that in the Old Testament. Whenever they would bring the lamb to the door of the tabernacle to be slain, it had to be accepted of the Lord for the atonement of their sins. So we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it was God who accepted that once for all sacrifice. And now that we are in him, we are accepted in the beloved. God sees you in Christ. He doesn't see you in Adam as a sinner. What he sees is this sinner saved by grace, placed into Christ, and when he looks at you, he sees Christ. Because you're in him, and he in you. In verse 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, and by the outward sign of water baptism. You know, I know some of these new translations are bad, but they're not that bad. All right. Notice where it stops, at grace. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. How are you forgiven? By the blood of Christ. That's grace. Do you realize what they had to go through to have the forgiveness or the atonement of their sins in the Old Testament? Picture this just for a moment. Here you are in the camp of the nation Israel. And you committed a sin. And God has brought that to the forefront. So you have to go select out a lamb without spot, without blemish. And you have to bring it to the door of the tabernacle. So you put a little rope around it and you're parading through the camp of Israel walking down. And all the Hebrew women are watching you go through camp. 
And all the elders see you go. Wonder what he did. Hmm. Apparently he sinned against God. And they had to take that lamb to the door of the tabernacle and shed its blood. And they sprinkled the blood of that lamb at the foot of the brazen altar, picturing the foot of the cross for the atonement of their sins. And they did that for 1,500 years. And it couldn't take away one sin. It only atoned them. So every time they sinned, they had to offer a blood sacrifice. And then, in the event that something was missed, God had the Day of Atonement for the national atonement of their sins. But all the blood of bulls and goats, even though that blood ran like a river, could not take away one sin. Not until Christ came and gave himself once for all were those sins removed as far as the east is from the west. I like that. You think about that? North and south meet. East and west never do. We're forgiven in Christ. Then in verse 9, spiritual blessing 5, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. And so here we see that we have a knowledge of his will. The mystery of his will. You see, not only do you comprehend prophecy, but now you have been also brought into the glorious light of the mystery as well. So you see, both programs, what God's doing on the earth and his plan and purpose for the heavenlies. And notice in verse 11, Spiritual blessing number six, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We have a heavenly inheritance in Christ, as we have seen to be seated with him. And finally, number seven in verse 13, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The day you trusted Christ, the Holy Spirit did a work on your behalf. He put you in Christ and sealed you there not with a seal such as man might use, but rather the Spirit himself is the seal. Notice the wording. Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You see, you couldn't save yourself, and you can't even keep yourself. God has saved you by his grace, and he keeps you by his grace as well. So you're eternally secure. And we have the privilege 
of having the assurance of that in this dispensation of grace. You can never lose your salvation. You're safe and secure in Christ. Because you see, your initial salvation did not depend upon your actions or your works. Rather, it was what Christ accomplished on your behalf. And you are kept in the same way. Your eternal salvation is not based on what you do or do not do. It's based on what he did at Calvary, that he shed his precious blood. So we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. So our primary blessings are spiritual in scope. And secondarily, in a physical sense, we have blessings as well. God's been good to us, hasn't he? You have a home, a roof over your head, clothes on your back. I think there's much to be thankful for in this country. Sometimes I don't think we appreciate the freedoms and the liberties that we enjoy in this country and the sacrifices that were made. In some cases, the ultimate sacrifice that we can even meet here today. Back to Ephesians 3 and verse 9. Great to know all this stuff, but it doesn't do you any good unless you make an application of it in your life. And that's what Paul says in verse 9. Here's your responsibility now. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. In the grace movement, we're terribly out of balance. Either we have those who are what many call the mystery club, where it's all doctrine and no walk. Or we have the other end of the spectrum where it's all walk at the exclusion of doctrine. And what we need to get back to, brethren, is this, is we need to have a balance between the two. Because, you see, our walk is based on our doctrine. What you believe is going to have a bearing on what you do. For example, if you lived under the law, the law of the Sabbath was that on that seventh day you did nothing. It was a day of rest, a day of worship. It pictured that millennial rest in Christ in that future kingdom. And so you walked accordingly, didn't you? You didn't go out and gather sticks for a fire. You didn't work on that day. If you did, you were under the curse of the law and could be put to death. So you see, you walked accordingly. But now we're no longer under law, we're under grace. So we have liberty in Christ today. We've chosen the first day of the week to worship. But you can worship on Tuesday or Wednesday if you want to. We should be worshiping every day of the week and meditating upon the Word of God. We need to get back to allowing these doctrines of grace to be worked out 
through us. And I think something needs to be written on sanctification. You know, there's positional sanctification and there's experiential sanctification and they're always terribly confused. We're set apart by God to his glory. We belong to him. But now let's act like it and live like it. Let's walk accordingly. Walk worthy of our calling. Shall cursings and bitterness come out of this mouth that honors and praises God? It ought not to be. I've been appalled at the language of some Christians who say they're saved by grace but go about cursing and using filthy communication. So here Paul says we have a responsibility to live the grace of God, to make known the fellowship of the mystery. If God's given you a knowledge of this wonderful message, then he expects you to do something about it. First of all, you have to take a stand for it. It's not easy. You're going to sacrifice a lot if you stand for this truth. I've been pretty much ostracized by my family. Most of them won't even talk to me. And of my Christian friends, who I thought were my Christian friends, quickly became my Christian enemies when I began to proclaim Paul's apostleship and message. And I became their enemy because I told them the truth. But you know, if there's something I can commit to you today that will help you like it's helped me, it's this. Keep your eyes on the Lord. You're serving the Lord. You're not serving men. He's the one we will one day answer to. Not men. Let them say what they will, but let us be found in the center of God's will. And I close with verse 9 again. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Have you been upholding your responsibility to make Christ known according to the revelation of the mystery? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank Thee for this time again. We thank Thee for these scriptures and this truth. We pray, dear Lord, that You would further our understanding of it. We thank Thee for the cross and all that was accomplished there. Words fail us to even thank Thee that we are saved according to the riches of thy grace. For it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.